Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are fresh on the heels of a four-week look at what God expects and enables as we anticipate the imminent return of Christ. Peter gave a doxology in verse 11. To Jesus Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And after that doxology, he is now diving in once again into the depths of God's purposes in suffering. How Christians are to suffer for Christ. The Christian's response to suffering. If you're able, please stand with me to read God's word. I'm going to read 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord God, I pray that you would take your word and drive it deep into our, into our hearts. That you would use us for your glory pray in Christ's name. Amen. How Christians are to suffer for Christ. The Christian's response to suffering. We all know that suffering is a huge part of life. As a Christian, I have experienced, and as a pastor, I have helped people through all kinds of trials. Physical, emotional, relational, financial, vocational. We all know that suffering is not compartmentalized. It affects everything in your life. It's all blending together and it takes a toll upon you. None of us are mere observers in suffering. We are all participants. And wouldn't we all love for suffering to just end? Raise your hand if you'd love suffering to end. That's, that's all of us. I mean, even now, there are some situations in my life that I would change in a minute if given the choice. But God is in control, and He knows better. And all of our adversity, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our trials, even death, 
come from one basic cause. The world is fallen. The creation, the scriptures say, groans. It is in bondage to decay. It is awaiting rebirth. As Bob Dylan sang, everything is broken. But there is good news in the mess. God's answer to our broken world was not to give up on it or to abandon it, but to redeem it. God sent his son to bear the dreadful curse of our sin, to die in our place, to be buried, to be raised on the third day, and although suffering invades God's good creation, it is a result of human rebellion and sin. And God, our awesome God, addressed suffering. And it affected him. We have a suffering servant, the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love First Peter. As we've been going through Peter, we notice, you notice that suffering is a big part of First Peter. It's come up before, it's going to come up again. The theme of Christian suffering and de- is being developed and reinforced, but it began back in chapter 1, verse 6. Peter had just told these elect exiles that they had such an awesome salvation that God had caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That inheritance is reserved in heaven for them who are kept by the power of God for this salvation. So he says to them in verse 6, you are rejoicing in this. Then he says, but now for a little while you have been distressed by various trials. It says that there's a reason for it. Because the tested genuineness of your faith would be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the return of Christ again. Peter is longing for the return of Christ and he wants us to long for that return. Peter is not just repeating himself when we're here in chapter 4 near the end of this chapter. From chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6, he is speaking of suffering, but it is within reference to those who inflicted suffering on others. These verses we're looking at now, this week and next, refer to a Christian's life in Christ. How will we respond to suffering? It has to do with how Christ's church is going to respond internally and also how it should respond externally to suffering. He is pointing out to them their deep, deep comfort in Christ. And he's using present imperatives. That's important to point out because he is calling for something resolute. He is calling for an attitude of steadfastness, an attitude of endurance, and even joy in the midst of suffering. How are Christians to suffer for Christ? What is the Christian's response to suffering? We're going to see four responses. We'll see the first two today. We'll start at verse 12. 
The first thing you should know about how Christians are to suffer for Christ is that you should expect it if you're a Christian. If you, if you are a Christian, you should expect to suffer for your faith in Christ. Verse 12 begins, Beloved. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Peter calls these elect exiles, Beloved. There's nothing else you remember today. Remember this. If you are a Christian, you are beloved of God. Peter loves the people he is writing to dearly. He, he is writing with a heartfelt sympathy for what they are going through and what they would go through. But more importantly, they are objects of God's matchless love. And so because of this love, he begins by telling them the kind of response they need to have first internally and then externally. What he's about to say is going to test that love. What he's about to say is crazy talk but for God. Crazy talk but for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to tell them that a fiery trial is about to come upon them, that times are going to get worse, that really difficult times lay ahead. And they were get this, they were to be glad. It was going to be bad and they were to rejoice. Crazy news if not for Jesus who Philippians 2 says although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant being found in the likeness of a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death death on a cross crazy talk if not for Jesus who Hebrews 12 says is the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame crazy talk if not for Jesus who died the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Believers, expect to suffer for your faith in Christ. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, literally ordeal, that's going to come upon you. The fiery trial used in the sense of a purifying, refining fire. Like Job said, when, he, when God has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange when it comes upon you because there is a purpose. It's to test you. It comes upon you to test you. It's to prove your faith genuine. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's something strange that we're happening as if by chance God has a purpose. Sometime on the night between July 18th and July 19th, A.D. 64, Rome burned to the ground. Burned for almost a week. You might have heard this before. Rome burned while... Nero fiddled. He wanted a new city. So he created a firestorm of 
epic proportion. The city was filled with tall wooden structures like tenements, like apartments built very closely together. The very dry wood burned fast and for almost a week. And everyone was homeless. And everyone knew that Nero had started the fire. Anytime someone would put out part of the fire, his soldiers would restart it. And everyone knew that Nero had done it, but there was an easy scapegoat. The Christians. Publicly, they were already hated and despised. And Peter wrote this letter shortly after Rome burned. It was the beginnings of some 200 years of persecution of Christians. Don't be surprised, Peter says, at the suffering you will endure. Nero tortured Christians in shockingly evil ways, even using them as torches in his gardens. Imagine, if you can, what it might have been like to be a Christian in the first century, accused of many things, accused of being a cannibal, immoral, an anarchist, against families, hating people. Historian Tacitus wrote of the death of Christians, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or rode in a chariot. Nero would roll Christians in tar and torch them. He dressed them in skins and they were torn by wild dogs or lions or panthers. And the persecution got worse under subsequent emperors such as Domitian and Trajan. Hating Christians became the law of the land. For over 200 years, becoming a Christian meant that you had to count the cost of your very life. Tertullian wrote, Public hatred asks but one thing, not an investigation into the crimes charged, but simply the confession of the Christian name. The profession Christianus sum, I am a Christian, was like writing your own death warrant. Don't be surprised. Think it not strange. The words translated surprised and strange actually come from a word meaning to receive as guests strangers who arrive unannounced. You like it when people just show up unannounced to your house? This, by the way, is going to sound strange, but it's, it's related to the word hospitality in verse 9. It's where we get our word xenophobia, fear of strangers. See, the believers are to receive the idea of intense suffering for their faith in Christ gladly as if welcoming unannounced strangers. He's telling them, God has a purpose in your suffering, and don't try to get out of it. Go through it. 
Welcome it into your life. Crazy talk if not for Christ. Peter, in saying, do not be surprised at this painful trial, is telling them, don't have the wrong response. Don't see it the wrong way. Don't take the low road. He's already used the same word in verse 4, referring to pagans who were surprised that Christians did not live in riotous living anymore and ungodliness. So he says, don't be surprised when you endure suffering as a Christian. It's in the present imperative with a negative which forbids a continued action. Don't be so surprised. I mean, when, when suffering comes upon us, we react sometimes in paralyzed shock. How could this be happening? This isn't supposed to happen to me. It's the natural inclination of our hearts to be surprised, to not want it have a continual attitude of bewilderment and astonishment that this is happening to me in my life Peter is saying if unbelievers are, are surprised at your behavior as a Christian then don't be surprised if they persecute you for being a Christian for Christ in you your hope of glory Jesus said it would be like this you remember the old weather, the weather reporter, uh, was it Fritz? Fritz said it would be like this. Right? Well, Jesus said it would be like this. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we all know suffering is ultimately due to sin. And as such, it is alien to the world. But suffering as a Christian should not be thought of as foreign, alien, strange to a Christian, but as the normal Christian life. Samuel Rutherford wrote a long time ago, it cost Christ and all his followers sharp showers and hot sweats ere they win to the top of the mountain. But still our soft nature would have heaven coming to our bedside when we are sleeping and lying down with us that we might go to heaven in warm clothes. But all that came there found wet feet, by the way, and sharp storms that did take the hide off their faces and found twos and froze and ups and downs and many enemies, by the way. I don't know of anyone who, who thinks suffering is a good thing. Everybody, everyone hates to suffer. No one thinks that suffering feels good. But God often uses the fire of testing in our lives to strengthen our faith. You can be sure, if you are a Christian, that God will use everything at his disposal in the process of making you more like Christ. We shouldn't be shocked, but thankful that we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. It's inevitable. For Christians, it's death, taxes, and persecution. Think it not strange. It's not foreign. It's inevitable. But be surprised if it doesn't come. Be surprised if it doesn't come. 
Herbert Workman, in his 1886 book, Persecution in the Early Church, wrote, For 200 years, the leaders amongst the Christians were branded as anarchists and atheists and hated accordingly. For 200 years, to become a Christian meant the great renunciation, the joining of a despised and persecuted sect, the swimming against the tide of popular prejudice, the coming under the ban of the empire, the possibility of any moment of imprisonment and death under its most fearful forms. For 200 years, he who would follow Christ must count the cost and be prepared to pay the same with his liberty and life. For 200 years, the mere profession of Christianity was itself a crime. For 200 years, Christianity was the only crime for which there was no forgiveness. In itself, all that was necessary is a title on the back of the condemned. He who made the claim to be a Christian was allowed neither to present apology nor to call in the aid of an advocate. Peter did not think that this firestorm, this this burning, this fiery trial would destroy them, but would grow them. Peter knew that God would use the painful trial to demonstrate what they could endure. Peter knew what Paul knew, that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We're not supposed to instigate it. We're not supposed to imagine it. But we are supposed to prepare for it. Expect it. How do you prepare for it? I would first say, start at 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, go all the way through 1 Peter 4.11. Do all that and pray all that into your life. And maybe then you'll be ready. You do expect to suffer for Christ. If they thought it strange, if we thought it, think it strange, then we and they would be holding a false view of what it means to be a Christian. It would cause us to react in astonishment and try to get out of suffering rather than go through it. Again, crazy talk, for, but for Christ. Expect it. And don't just expect it, but also, number two, Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Verse 13. But rejoice, be happy, insofar as you share, literally have fellowship with, like Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, basically sharing in his sufferings. So be happy, rejoice, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's the return of Christ again. It literally reads this way, that you may, that you may rejoice with rejoicing, that you may be glad with gladness, that you would be exuberantly happy, that you would be beside yourself with joy, overjoyed, as you share Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, if you're insulted... For the name of Christ, you're blessed. We don't see that as a blessing. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are, you're, you're blessed. We see it as curse. 
But you're blessed because Peter says the spirit of glory, the spirit of God rests on you. What does that mean? The word it comes from literally means to, to take a break, to have an intermission from your work. It's like taking a nap. That's what I'm going to try to get this afternoon. I'm going to get one of those uh, Sunday afternoon naps. They're awesome when they work well. It's like when you wake up well-rested after a good night's sleep. What it means is that God's Spirit, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, that God's Spirit is, is resting on you in such a way that He is going to refresh you, revive you, revitalize you, strengthen you. He's going to renew your strength. He's going to build substance in you. He's going to prepare you for, for further service for the kingdom. It's a great blessing. It's a great blessing. I think it's fair for us to ask when we're going through suffering and experiencing trials is it real? Is it imagined? What is it? Is it it discipline? I think it's easy for us to imagine that something's happening maybe when it's not. But we all go through basic human suffering, every one of us. And only you know how much you have endured. Only you know how much you've gone through. And there's one who knows more. God knows everything that you have experienced. God knows more than you how much pain you have absorbed. And sometimes I think we call things persecution, but we're not suffering for our faith. God disciplines those whom he loves. Those who belong to Jesus are disciplined, and it's used by God to grow us. Hebrews 12 says, For the moment, all discipline does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And then there is real persecution, which is a source of joy. It could be that we have only experienced a little bit, or none at all, or a great amount. But it breeds joy. That's why James could say, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance Peter says you're blessed like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 dying for his faith and he looks up into heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God blessed like Paul whose reflections on suffering give us great insight, that God uses suffering to prepare us for glory. Romans 8, I I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
our future glory will far outweigh anything we go through here. Our future glory will, will far overcompensate for everything you have and will absorb. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. Our outer man is decaying. Our inner self is being renewed day by day because this, this momentary light affliction. You know what Paul said happened to them? Beaten times without number, without food, without clothing, without shelter. This, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Nothing will compare to the glory that will be revealed. And we hate to suffer. We, we hate it, hate it, hate it. We hate to suffer. But God loves to cause us to rejoice. And he does so through suffering. And you can be sure that God uses everything that happens in your life for his perfect and sovereign and merciful and gracious purposes. Paul Brand, missionary surgeon to India, wrote a book called Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. He says, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us not as opposites, but as twins, strangely joined and intertwined. And then he says, nearly all of my memories of acute happiness, in fact, involve some element of pain or struggle. He tells the story of his mother as they were missionaries in India who for the last 20 years of her life didn't use a mirror. And the reason why is because she had been ravaged by the sun and by illness and by many things and so she gave up even wanting to look in a mirror. He said that God had given her a beauty beyond compare. I think sometimes when we suffer, we lose perspective when we start thinking all these things that aren't true. Well, God is punishing me for my sins, or maybe I'm not reading my Bible and praying enough, or not doing this or that and all the while God just wants us to recognize his hand in our life and yield to his purposes and it isn't easy it is excruciatingly painful God has a plan in bringing adversity and suffering and persecution into believers lives Thomas Watson said that God's rod is a pencil to draw Christ's image more lively on us. Brian Hedges said, the pathways of our lives are far more often paved with adversity than strewn with flowers. You see, God wants you to rejoice. Rejoice that he is growing you up and increasing your usefulness for the kingdom even if you feel very unusable because of your current condition. It is very easy for us when we are suffering 
that we will say, I won't be able to be used until after. And God is doing something in you now. Puritan John Flavel wrote, Let a Christian be but two or three years without an affliction, and he is almost good for nothing. A.W. Tozer said, It's doubtful whether God can use a person greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Charles Spurgeon said, They who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, beloved. Workman in his book that I referenced earlier, Persecution in the Early Church, tells of the stories, experiences of martyrs. And I want you to hear of several. Third century martyrs. Perpetua was 22 when she was arrested and cast into prison with her baby. She said, I was terrified. Never before had I experienced such awful darkness. The heat overpowering by reason of the crowd of prisoners, the extortions of the guard. Above all, I was torn with anxiety for my baby. Two deacons, Tertius and Pomponius, obtained a better room for her for several hours a day. She said, There I sat nursing my baby, which was slowly wasting away. Nevertheless, she said, the prison to me was a palace. I would rather have been there than anywhere else. When Perpetua was brought before the judge, she was ordered to sacrifice to the emperor, who was considered to be God. And she was condemned for her refusal with her comrades to fight the wild beasts. And she said, so we went with joy to our prison. Arrested with Perpetua was Felicitas, who was eight months pregnant. As the day of the games, as they called them, approached, her labor began. She lay there in agony in the crowded prison, and the keeper of the guard said to her, if you cannot endure these pains, what will you do when you're thrown to the beasts? She said, there will be one with me who will suffer for me because I shall suffer for him. Tertullian wrote, when the day of victory came, the Christians marched in procession from the prison to the arena as if they were marching to heaven with joyous countenances, agitated rather by gladness than fear. They tried to force them into certain outfits dedicated to the gods, the men in robes devoted to Saturn, the women of Ceres, and they refused. So they marched to their death in their own clothes, purposely singing psalms. Once they got to the arena, a man was put on a raised platform to be attacked by a bear. But the bear would not leave its den, so he was handed over to a leopard that with one bite covered him with blood. The mob called out in glee. That's the bath that brings salvation. 
to mock baptism, which as unbelievers they greatly misunderstood. So Perpetua and Felicitas, both shortly after childbirth, were hung up in nets to be gored by a bull, which happened several times, and ultimately the two women of God were put to death by gladiators. Perpetua actually guided the hand of the young gladiator to her throat. A.D. 203-ish. Then there's the case of Afra of Augsburg, a former prostitute. The judge said to her, I hear you were a prostitute. Sacrifice to the emperor, for the God of the Christians will have nothing to do with you. But she replied, My Lord said that he came down from heaven to save sinners such as me. So in spite of the temptation to save her own life, she persisted in her faith in the power of Christ to save to the uttermost. She too was handed over to the flames. Workman says, for weeks before their deaths, the martyrs lived in a state of ecstasy. There are literally hundreds of such stories in this book that I'm reading, in Fox's book of martyrs and elsewhere, up to the present day. This didn't just happen in the first century or 200 years after that. It's happening today. On Friday, February 15th, on, on the 15th of February. What's today's date? The 20th, it was a week ago. It was, it was uh, Sunday. Uh, the Islamic State posted a video where they beheaded 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians for their faith in Christ. In fact, I just read an article yesterday that said that the the video was doctored with. That they actually filmed the execution in a sound studio. I don't know about you, but it makes it even more heinous to me. They wanted us to see it. The brother of two of the 21 Coptic Christians that were murdered in Libya called in live to a program to thank the Islamic State for including the men's declaration of faith in the video of their execution. In fact, he called to honor the 21 courageous men, including his 23-year-old brother and his 25-year-old brother, because, as he put it, they, they are a badge of honor for Christianity. He says, we are proud to have this number of people from our village who have become martyrs. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. The name of Christ. Peter preached, Acts 4, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The apostles, Acts 5, went on their way rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name. Acts 9, Jesus told Ananias, with regard to Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The name of Christ offends unbelievers because it stands for who he is and what he did and what he's going to do. Beloved, suffering as a Christian should not be thought of as some foreign strange thing but the normal Christian life 
We are to be foreign aliens to the world and it to us. And I know you can't always see the love of God and the goodness of God in your trials. But the gospel invites you and I to look beyond those trials to the sacrificial love of our Savior. Milton Vincent wrote, the gospel is one, one great permanent circumstance. The one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. And every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves His gospel purposes in me. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere along with all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good to me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. I think it would be very appropriate for us to end this sermon in prayer together. I want to ask you to maybe turn to someone who's near you and we put some sheets out because I think we should pray for our persecuted family because our family in Christ is being persecuted right now. And so I want to ask you to, to pray with one another, someone who's near you. Pray for the persecuted church. You can go on your, on your mobile device to persecution.com if you'd like. You can actually get a prayer calendar every day. You can pray for the persecuted church. And then um, after we've prayed for a few minutes, we'll, we'll sing a song.